The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful psalm? Here we go. Numbers 12 verses 1 through 16 today. 
Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it? Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Arian, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. Then he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again, and afterward the people moved from Hazarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now this is a rather difficult passage to read and to understand what's going on, and at the end I'll explain what's going on and why the Lord placed it here. But if you remember the passages that we've looked at and what they have pictured in the coming of Christ, you may be able to place what this account is doing here and then how it fits into more redemptive scenes, which are coming in the chapters ahead. As is always the case with stories like this one today, there are several things going on. There's obviously the true narrative, which actually occurred. Along with that, there are moral lessons, which can be derived from the text, which are always good for life application sermons. There's also a pictorial representation that comes out of other things, normally pointing directly to Christ and often adding in other aspects of redemptive history. And tied in with that third is a fourth prophetic aspect of the stories. There are things which are prophesied in scripture, which are seen in mere shadows, which are then spoken forth as future events by later prophets and which will be realized at various points of time in redemptive history. This account is no different. We'll look at some of each of these details today. One of them stands out as an obvious tenet, though, right from the surface of the narrative. Moses is said to have married an Ethiopian, and it says that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of her. Although it's not always plainly evident in Scripture because of rather hard words against certain people groups, one of the things which the Bible teaches is that all people— all people are on the same level before the Lord when it comes to salvation. No person is exempt and no one is favored over another. That isn't always evident in churches too, but it is explicit in scripture, regardless of how the preacher or the teacher attempts to manipulate the text to say otherwise. 
Our text verse comes from Acts chapter 17. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hopes that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God made all men from one man, one blood, and God has placed all men in the exact spot that they would be most likely to call out to him and to be saved. What this means is that the guy in Mongolia in A.D. 1227 would be no more likely to seek out the Lord than he would have been if he was born in Sarasota in 1964. He has placed all of us in a spot where the hope is that we will seek him. Miriam and Aaron didn't like that their brother married an Ethiopian. That is what the surface text says. And so we can see that they were what we would today call racists. That will be explained as we go on. But... That racist attitude is hiding a more deep-seated type of contempt in them. We will see that as we go on as well. Sometimes negative attitudes against people or peoples come from places we may not even know exist. We shut out the deeper animosities and express our hatred of something or someone in order to divert the attention away from something that others might find a bit more offensive. And if not others, certainly the Lord. A quick example would be hatred of the Jews. There are lots of reasons that people say they hate the Jews. A couple of days before I typed this sermon, some loser went out and he shot up a synagogue and killed 11 Jews because he said they were behind all kinds of crazy conspiracies. Jews get blamed for a lot of conspiracies, but that is not usually the reason for people hating them. First, they remain isolated as a culture. And secondly, they tend to be extremely successful in whatever they do. Combine the two, and you have a real recipe for jealousy. No matter what the Jews do, they always seem to do it a little bit better than the next guy. And because they collectively seem to excel as well, the world hates it. You think of the Jews, and what did God say? I'm going to bless them. Those whom you bless, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, right? But he says, I will bless you. And so this is what happens with the Jewish people. They have the blessing, and the blessing itself becomes the curse, not because it's anything wrong with the blessing, but because they have taken the blessing and they have applied it not to the Lord, but to their own greatness, to their own righteousness. And because of that, it becomes the curse upon them. And yet they go out into the world still bearing these blessings and they are isolated from the rest of the world, just as we saw in the book of Esther. And the world doesn't like that. And there they start succeeding as a group of people. And the people say, I want what they've earned. They haven't earned it rightfully. They can't figure out the secret to their success. And so they blame them for all types of conspiracy theories. Those Jews get ahead because it can't be. They've earned it. Therefore, they must be cheating. In the end, I would say the majority of Jew hatred is simply that, jealousy. It has festered since their inception, and it continues on today. Whatever other reason for hating them, the main reason is found in jealousy. It is the human condition. That may have seemed like a pointless diversion, but it's not. Jealousy is a green-eyed monster, and it is found not against only the Jews, but it is found in the Jews as well. Their jealousies are just directed in other ways. 
We might see a picture of that in our verses today. Maybe so. One thing is for sure, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is not so with my servant Moses. It's verses one through eight. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against <laughs> Moses. Miriam And she started speaking, Miriam and Aaron. There's an immediate stress on the misdeeds of Miriam here. First, the words then spoke are in the feminine in the Hebrew, highlighting Miriam's role. Further, Miriam is mentioned before Aaron. It is apparent from this, as it was from the account of the golden calf, that Aaron is a rather weak and indecisive figure. Miriam is the one who has taken the offense, and she grabbed Aaron by the hand and led him into the sin of speaking against Moses. This is all the more certain based on the outcome of the events where she alone is punished with leprosy. Despite this, Aaron is not innocent. First, because he didn't immediately attempt to put out the fire that Miriam had started. And secondly, because in his not doing so, he only urged the matter on further. This now becomes the greatest threat of all of those which had come or which would come against Moses. Though seemingly not so at all other times, Aaron has stood or will stand with Moses. But this is an insurrection which comes from within Moses' own house and from his two older siblings. It could presumably be a point where the two outvote the one. But more so, if this rebellion were to advance, it would compromise the entire structure of order which had been developed for the people on their trek to Canaan. And further, Miriam was called a prophetess in Exodus 15 verse 20, though that is probably not an office, but rather a description of what occurred in relation to the song which she had sung. She may have felt overconfident of her station because of the title. The fact that this comes after the granting of the spirit that had rested on Moses to the 70 others is not to be missed. Miriam was probably incensed that she did not receive any such favor, nor did Aaron. In this, they appear to be jealously responding to having not received something to which they had no right. What Miriam means is not well agreed upon. It comes from two separate words, marar, which means either bitter or strong, and yam, which means sea. And so her name may mean bitter waters or waters of strength. At this time, she is rushing forth as strong waters, which are unbound and unrestrained. And this, verse 1, continues because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. The meaning of this is highly debated. The Hebrew word is kushi, the same word used to describe an Ethiopian. Some say this is speaking of Zipporah because of the location of Midian, where she was from, was actually once a part of the land belonging to Cush. Some think Zipporah had died and Moses married another wife who was an Ethiopian. Or it could be that Moses took a second wife who was an Ethiopian. The details really don't matter. Other than to say that this is not Zipporah, that will be evident in a minute. For now, whether Zipporah is dead or not is irrelevant. The only thing the text focuses on is that Moses has married an Ethiopian woman. In this, there was nothing forbidden. The only prohibition so far on marriages is found in Exodus 34, verse 19, speaking of the inhabitants of Canaan. It says, speaking in a negative, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Cush, or Ethiopia, was a descendant of Ham, the son of Noah, who had done something perverse to his father. 
His brothers included Mitzrayim, or Egypt of today, Put, who became some of the troublesome North African peoples, and Canaan, the son of Ham, who was directly cursed by Noah. It is evident that Miriam felt superior to this woman and despised the fact that Moses had married down the social ladder. However, Joseph had married an Egyptian, and their sons became two tribes of Israel. The disgust Miriam displays for Moses' union to an Ethiopian stands as a sad testament to racial or cultural prejudice which continues on in the world today. However, the Bible on several occasions shows that the supposedly pure Jewish line is no better than that of any other. For example, a comparison between Israel and Cush, meaning Ethiopia, is made right in Amos chapter 9. Here's what it says. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me. So he's making a direct correlation between Ethiopia and the Jews right there. O children of Israel, says the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? That was a strong rebuke to Israel that they were no better than the supposedly lesser peoples who surrounded them. Miriam will be imparted that same knowledge indirectly through what occurs. Verse 1 continues, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. The addition of this clause shows undoubtedly that this is not speaking of Zipporah. Even if someone was slanderously called a Cushite as a term of contempt, like we use such terms today, and which actually seems like a likely pejorative of the time, the repetition of these words showed that this woman was, in fact, an Ethiopian. Whether Zipporah is dead or alive once again is irrelevant. The focus is on the animosity of Miriam towards the lowly Cushite and how she has taken it as an offense as degrading to Moses, and thus to her. If her younger brother had made such an unwise and socially poor decision, then it would mean that his lofty position within the camp was not so lofty that they could not also partake of it. Verse 2, so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? The words are emphatic, harak ach be only and solely through Moses? They're not denying Moses' prophetic office, but they are elevating themselves to that same level. As is seen with, verse 2 continues, has he not spoken through us also? Exodus 4 verse 15 and elsewhere confirms that the Lord spoke through Aaron at times, either directly or indirectly. Exodus 15.20 shows that Miriam's words were divinely inspired as well. However, those were rare instances, and they confirmed nothing concerning the office of prophet. They simply confirmed that the Lord used them as his instruments for his own purposes. In 1 Chronicles 12 verse 18, the Spirit is said to have come upon a guy named Amasai, who then prophesied. However, it doesn't follow that because of this he was a prophet. Again, this jealous streak was certainly aroused not because Moses married an Ethiopian, but rather that was being used as a pretext for their jealousy, which stemmed from them not being among those who received the spirit which rested on Moses. Their attitude, however, is not without a greater audience. Verse 2 continues, and the Lord heard it. Here's an ominous statement. It is true that the Lord hears all things. But at times, he chooses to not hear some things. This complaint may have simply been between Miriam and Aaron. Regardless of the scope of those to whom the words were conveyed, the Lord heard and he chose to hear. This is in contrast to Moses, who confessed his displeasure to the Lord in the previous chapter. And despite that, the Lord chose not to hear, but responded in kindness and long-suffering with him. 
Such is not the case with what he now hears, especially because, verse 3, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Here's a new word in scripture, anav. It can signify humble, meek, depressed in mind or circumstances, afflicted, and so on. It comes from the verb, which means to be humbled or afflicted. (coughs) The context drives the meaning. And here the context appears to be different than translations state. I say appears because I first held to one view and then came to another. The preceding chapter spoke of Moses' affliction because of the ingratitude of the people towards both him and towards God. No man had endured such responsibility leading to affliction that he had. This is confirmed in his words when he appealed to the Lord. He had carried the pains and burdens of the people as if his own. It was he who found the very authority and power that he possessed as oppressive. And yet it was his own sister and brother who envied that same authority. They assumed that they could carry the burden as well as he could, but they had not been endowed with the spirit which had rested upon him. Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Well, here you have it. The Lord spoke directly to the three of them. It doesn't say that he spoke to Moses, who then relayed that on to the two others. They knew the Lord's voice, and they responded to it accordingly. The word suddenly was introduced in verse 6-9 when speaking of a person dying suddenly next to a Nazarite, thus violating their vow of consecration. In other words, there is a sudden, abrupt, and unusual call out to them. One can sense the displeasure and the foreboding of disaster in the use of the word. When it says for them to come to the tent of meeting, that in no way implies inside of the tent. Time and again, people and offerings are presented at the tent of meeting without actually going into it. There is no violation of the law in calling Miriam in this manner. They will stand there before the tent as is next scene. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. The same terminology was used in verse 1125, where the Lord is said to have come down in the cloud to speak with Moses and impart the spirit to the 70 elders. Further, the Lord is at the door of the tent, and therefore they are outside, not inside of it. Does everybody see how the context is important in understanding what happened in the previous sermons and the previous chapters in order to stand how it's being built for us to understand what's going on in this chapter. Verse 5 continues, And called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. The Lord's voice obviously issued from the cloud, calling them to stand before him. They would have passed the altar of offering on their way there. And this is problematic, because Miriam has come forward bearing the sin of presumption. She has brought no offering, and she has had no sacrifice for her sin. She is in the presence of the Lord, but without the required atonement. Verse 6, then he said, hear now my words. Shimu na davare. Here I pray my words. The meaning is obvious. You have evidently not taken to heart my words as spoken to you through Moses. Now, please hear my words directly from me to you. Verse 6 continues, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. The words should connect the name Jehovah with prophet, as Young's translates this verse. Here's how it should read. And he saith, here I pray you my words, if your prophet is of Jehovah, in an appearance unto him I make myself known, in a dream I speak with him. There are prophets and there are false prophets. The prophet of the Lord will have the Lord revealed to him, a false prophet will not. 
When a prophet receives a message from the Lord, it is in an obscure way. The word vision is translated elsewhere as mirror. It's a shadowy reflection, just as a dream is. There's no externally audible communication in such a revelation. Rather, there is an internal voice issuing forth. They were themselves mere organs used for the purpose of transmitting the word. However, verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. What is being said here is that the revelation communicated to Moses is on a completely different level than that of any other prophets of the Lord. How this is so is yet to be explained. Verse 7 continues, he is faithful in all my house. The Lord shows that there will be a contrast between any prophet of the Lord and Moses. But before explaining the contrast, he says the reason for it, he is faithful in all my house. The words are picked up by the author of Hebrews concerning Moses, but they are also contrasted to that of Christ Jesus. Here's what it says in Hebrews 3, verses 4 through 6. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The house being spoken of is the entire economy in which the Lord works. In the case of Moses, it is the house of the old covenant, which stretches out even until the time of the coming of Christ. In the case of Christ, he is the son over his own house, meaning the new covenant. What this means then is that Moses was the only person in the entire old covenant economy who ever would have this particular type of communication. All other prophets would have a lesser form of revelation than that of Moses. It is this statement here, which is then the basis for what is stated in Deuteronomy 18 with these words, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's Moses speaking from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. This prophet, like Moses, would be unlike any other prophet in that he would receive his revelation directly from the mouth of the Lord. This was what the people were referring to in John 1, and which was then confirmed to be Jesus by Stephen in Acts 7, verse 37. The words now communicated to Aaron and to Miriam are to be used to point directly to Jesus Christ. For now, the Lord speaks to Moses' faithfulness, obviously in contrast to the unfaithfulness of Miriam and Aaron. And he then gives the contrast of thought concerning the regular prophet of the Lord under the Old Covenant. Verse 8, I speak with him face to face. P-L-P, face to face. This was first stated and obviously well known to the congregation in Exodus 33, verse 11, which said, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Verse 8 continues, even plainly and not in dark sayings. Here is a new word, chida, or that which is enigmatic or a riddle. That comes from chud, meaning to propound a riddle. All other prophets during the period of this covenant would receive revelation in an obscure manner, whereas Moses received his in an open and fully understandable way. That does not mean that Moses knew all of the pictures and patterns which the words he penned contained, but that the words themselves were not a curiosity or an enigma as to why they were being received. Verse 8 continues, and he sees the form of the Lord. The word form is the same word translated as likeness in the Ten Commandments when speaking of the likeness of anything in heaven or earth or in the water under the earth. 
Moses saw a likeness of the Lord, which no other saw. Quite possibly, he saw the physical manifestation of the Lord that the apostles later saw and touched and walked with. Verse 8 continues, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? They knew these things. They had seen Moses ascend the mountain to meet with the Lord. They had seen him go to the tent outside the camp to meet with the Lord. They had seen him enter the tent of meeting daily to meet with the Lord. And they knew that the words he received there would come true as spoken for the people's benefit, such as in the giving of the manna. And yet they spoke presumptuously against him. In this, it was not Moses that they actually spoke against, was it? But the Lord himself who spoke to them through Moses. My servant is faithful in all my house. It is true. With complete trust in him, I am confident. No matter what the job faithfully that he will do, yes, in him I know that my trust is well spent. He is as a son over his house, doing what is right, and all things are tended to with perfect care. Never does he slack through day or through night. Of every need, he is perfectly aware. And so in him, you too can be confident. He will be sure to tend to your needs. So it is true. When you trust in my son, Jesus, your trust is well spent. For you, when you call on him, great things he will do. Our second thought today is, and there she was, a leper. Verses 9 through 16. Verse 9. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. Ve'yechar af Yehovah bam va'yelech. And burned nostrils Yehovah against them and departed. The Lord's fury, as described by burning nostrils, raised up. In this, the judge determined his sentence, and without allowing them to even respond, he departed as if from the bench of judgment. Verse 10, and when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. The punishment of leprosy shows the terrible consequences of what she had done. The same penalty came upon Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, in 2 Kings 5, verse 27, for having violated his trust as a servant of the prophet of God. And again, the penalty of leprosy came upon the forehead of King Uzziah for attempting to usurp the rights of the priests by entering the temple of the Lord in order to burn incense on the altar of incense. Each of these trespasses was in relation to the sacred trust which they had been given, and each of them received the penalty for their actions. However, she was not the only one who was punished in this act. Verse 10 continues, Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. It is speculated why only Miriam was punished. That is not valid speculation. Aaron indeed was punished. Miriam was the instigator of this, and yet Aaron did nothing to restrain her, showing his weak and malleable character. The punishment upon her would be a torturous punishment to him because of his failure to man up to the situation before it got out of hand. Secondly, he could not even reach out to comfort her without becoming unclean and violating his office. And thirdly, simply because of his office, he was spared the leprosy. An implicit rebuke to him came because of the office which necessitated his not being afflicted despite deserving it. Miriam, however, received the punishment that she was due for failing to come with an acceptable sacrifice to atone for her sins. Unlike the 70 elders who were called for the impartation of the Spirit, the Lord calling her to the tent did not negate the requirement that no person was to come before the Lord empty-handed. When the 70 were called, the Lord showed his approval of their presence by speaking to Moses. 
Here, Aaron and Miriam were called, and the Lord showed his displeasure by speaking to them and not to Moses. Concerning her leprosy, John Lang says, She would stand above Moses, snow white in righteousness, while she looked down on him as unclean. She would be a lady over the church, for she dominated over Aaron, and now, even as a leper, she must be excluded from the church. Verse 11, So Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Has anybody here ever said that to themselves after doing something so utterly stupid? I got to tell you, I say it a lot. Please don't lay this iniquity on me, Lord. And thank God for 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, which says that we are not being imputed sin when we are in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, every single day I'd wake up and I would be condemned once again, and I'd have to work my way back up to heaven because the blood of Christ would be insufficient to cover my sins. But thank God that's not true. Aaron's words here showed that the punishment inflicted on Miriam is a punishment upon him as well. He acknowledges his guilt. He acknowledges his sin, and he acknowledges his punishment, all united with that of Miriam. Alenu, on us. Further, this is the second recorded time that Aaron calls his younger brother Adoni, or my Lord. The first was at the incident of the golden calf when he was clearly in the wrong. Now he again calls Moses, my Lord. His acknowledgement of Moses' authority is once again highlighted. The petition is directly to Moses as if he could pardon the offense. But it obviously means that Aaron wants him to go to the Lord and beg for mercy. He uses a new and rather rare word here, ya'al, a verb meaning to act foolishly. Their actions were foolish, and though they deserve the punishment of fools, he petitions for the mercy of the all-wise God. Only a short while earlier, they had united in rebellion, as if they could speak for the Lord. Now all such thoughts are gone. His only hope is that Moses would go, as it was his right and duty to do so, and speak to the Lord. And so, he continues, verse 12, Please do not let her be as one dead. This is the ceremonial aspect of leprosy under the law of Moses. Though alive, the afflicted one is treated as dead. He is cut off from the congregation and can have no contact with them. Thus, all lepers are also separated from fellowship with the Lord at his sanctuary. Verse 12 continues, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. This is the physical aspect of the leprosy. A leper wastes away limb by limb and with a loss of flesh that eventually gives him the appearance of a stillborn child who has for some extended time remained in his mother's womb. When it comes forth, it is a lifeless mass of corrupted tissue. Aaron knows the outcome of the disease, and he again petitions Moses directly as if he can ensure the outcome to heal her. And as one would expect, Moses acts. Verse 13, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, please heal her. Oh God, I pray. The words in the Hebrew are in a most passionate form where Moses repeats himself, El na rafa na la. God, I pray, heal, I pray, her. The use of El or God signifies his mighty power. The word comes from Ayil or Ram. Such an animal is the symbol of strength as it butts with its horns. Moses' use of it here acknowledges his power and petitions for him to use it once again for good and not for destruction. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed for seven days? 
The idea of spitting in another's face has not changed in our society from that of the Hebrews. It was an act of great contempt. It is seen in Job where the young men who once revered him contemptuously would spit in his face. Further, it is referred to in Isaiah chapter 50 when prophesying of those who would spit in the face of Christ. This prophecy is fulfilled in the words of Mark 14 verse 65. For a father to spit in his daughter's face, the Lord says that she would be kalam, or ashamed, for seven days. It is a new word also, signifying being humiliated or insulted. If such were the case with a mere spit in the face by a close relative, how much more shamed should Miriam be when the Lord has afflicted her with the due penalty for her contempt of him? Verse 14 continues, let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. According to Leviticus 13, a person who was confirmed to have leprosy was to be put outside the camp. Once that was healed, they were to be checked again, and if cleansed, certain rituals were to be conducted, and they would be allowed into the camp, but not into their tent for another seven days. Whether the leprosy was healed by the Lord immediately, but the penalty for defilement caused her to be kept outside of the camp, or whether she was not healed until the seventh day, either way, she bore the disgrace of having become unclean through leprosy. The irony was thick in her regard. She had challenged her brother, who was the leader of Israel, thus placing herself above all others in the camp. Now she would be shut out as defiled in, in less regard than all who were in the camp. And so she went out. Verse 15, so Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. It is obvious that any defiled people traveled with Israel, but not in the ranks of Israel. There would have been defiled people at any given time during their travels. Uh, therefore, there must be more to this verse than merely waiting for her to be brought in again, as if it was necessary for the camp to move. Such wouldn't be the case. What I'm telling you is that the camp would move from time to time, and there would be defiled people at any given time. And so they would move, just not with the camp. They would be outside the camp moving. So there must be a reason why the Lord is saying what he's saying right here. It is the fact that they actually waited for her to be brought in once again that is of note. The entire camp was made aware of the reason for their delay. Miriam had offended the Lord and she was being punished for it. First, the entire camp would know that she was reduced to a leper and disgraced. And secondly, the entire camp would share in the punishment of Aaron and Miriam as a warning to never oppose Moses in such a manner again. The word for bringing her back into the camp is asaf, or gather. Until they gathered her in, the camp would not move on. Verse 16, and afterward the people moved from Hazarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. As noted in chapter 11, Hazarot means villages. Paran means glorious. Only after Miriam was Asaf or gathered in were the people ready to move into the wilderness of Paran. Oh, we have sinned and done foolishly. We have not been faithful to you as we should. We have acted unfaithfully and acted jealously. Please forgive us and do not cast us out for good. Oh, that you would forgive us of our wrong. We stand before you knowing that we have offended you. Please don't let our punishment last very long. Restore us, O oh God, and to you we will be true. Take away our guilt and our shame and restore us. Your favor, heal us in your sight. We have done wrong and we have received the blame. Heal us, O oh God, and going forward we shall do what is right. 
Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. What we have in this passage today is a snapshot of what would happen to Israel after their rejection of the Lord. Remember, the context of all of these passages is going in a progression, showing us redemptive history unfolding right before our eyes. He has married an Ethiopian wife. In this case, it doesn't matter if it's Zipporah or not. Moses has taken a Gentile as his spouse and brought her into his tent. It is the Lord's sovereign act of grace that he has included Gentiles in his covenant graces. Everybody understand that? We are the Lord's by a sovereign act of grace. He has pulled us into that covenant with him. Miriam here pictures the prophetic witness of Israel and Aaron the priestly witness of Israel, both of which testified to the person and work of Christ, but which Israel collectively has rejected. In other words, their jealousy of Moses is reflective of Israel's jealousy of what was understood from their own law and the words of their own prophets. But what is more is that, as noted, their hatred of the wife was merely a pretext for hatred of the fact that they did not receive the portion of the Spirit that the elders of Israel did previously in our previous chapter. Both Christ and the apostles were hated because of their witness of the work of the Lord and the acceptance of a Gentile bride. Israel saw the mysteries of God's workings being revealed to the Gentiles through the apostles, and they hated it. They were jealous of it, and they fought against it. Now, when I say Israel, I'm talking about the leaders of Israel because they stand for the people of Israel. Just like when Jesus says at the end of times when Israel calls on him, it doesn't mean the people, it means the leaders. Until the leadership calls on Jesus, he ain't returning. So when I say Israel, I'm talking about the leadership there, okay? This is all revealed in the New Testament. Much of it is revealed in the book of Acts. The plague on Miriam is the curse upon Israel, which happened because of their stand against Christ. However, Aaron, the high priest, begged Moses for relief and healing. This, just as Jesus called out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this, Christ, the true high priest, petitions for the healing of Israel. But a time of punishment must be fulfilled. The seven days of Miriam's punishment is reflective of the words of Leviticus 26, where the Lord said he would punish Israel seven times for their sins if they didn't heed him the first time. Israel didn't heed after their exile to Babylon. They rejected Christ, and their second punishment is for seven times. Israel did not move on for seven days until Miriam was gathered in again. And only after their extended second punishment of seven times over would Israel, the people, be gathered in. This has actually happened in our lifetimes, and they're almost ready to move on. As far as the location here, it is Chazarot, or villages. It implies a place of many villages and thus many people. It is a fitting description of the land of Israel's exile around the world among many settlements in a wide range of peoples. The people remained there until Miriam was gathered in. It is the same word, Asaf, which speaks of the people of Israel having been gathered again into the land of Israel in the latter days. In type and picture, we are seeing a simple snapshot of what occurred after Christ's ministry, as was revealed in the previous chapter. Remember the manna. Remember the spirit being given. Remember the plague that came at the end of the chapter. All of that was given to lead us to where we are now. Pictures of Christ's ministry, and then his death, and Israel rejecting him. Israel didn't want the manna, Christ. They lusted after other flesh, which only brought death. 
They saw the witness of the 70 who prophesied. They came against their prophet like Moses. They received their punishment being defiled and unclean ceremonially and in a state of corruption and death during their period of banishment. But they were eventually restored and gathered in again. They are heading into the wilderness of Paran or glorious. More snapshots of the history of Israel will be seen when they arrive there. God has selected these individual stories to show us greater pictures of what lies ahead, both for Israel and for the world at large. In the future, when Christ would come, this is what is being pictured. Of Miriam and Aaron, think of Israel's rejection of Jesus. When you hear John Calvin's words, think of it and their attitude. Listen, that they not only abuse the gifts of God towards the brother whom they despise, but by an ungodly and sacrilegious glorification, extol the gifts themselves in such a manner as to hide the author of the gifts. Now, John Calvin wasn't thinking of a prophetic picture here. He's just writing a commentary, but that exactly matches what Israel has done to Jesus over the past 2,000 years. That they not only abuse the gifts of God towards their brother, meaning Christ, whom they despise, which they do, but by an ungodly and sacrilegious glorification extol the gifts themselves in such a manner as to hide the author of the gifts. And that's exactly what happened in the writing of the Talmud and their writings, their rabbinic writings. They've rejected him. They've hidden him. They've obscured him. They've changed texts to hide the author of the gifts. And this is exactly what's being pictured right here. You think that the Torah, the five books of Moses are irrelevant. That was 3,500 years ago and it means nothing to us. They are happening right now in human history. They are as relevant right now as they were when they were written about Moses because they picture what's happening in Israel right now in human history. That is what's astonishing. If what John Calvin writes doesn't sound like the attitude of the nation is displayed towards Christ, I'm not sure what else could do better. They rejected him and his apostles. They looked to glorify themselves through the law rather than through Christ. And they have done their very, very best to hide the author of those gifts. The patterns from Numbers look to the reality of the world in which we, even in this very day, continue to live in. And because of that, I'd like to give you a salvation call. Because I don't know if everybody here is actually called on Jesus Christ or not. But the fact is that the entire Bible... From the very first word, Bereshit, all the way to the last, amen, all of it talks about Jesus Christ. It all points to him and what he would do in human history. God created, we talked about that in Prophecy Update today, there's no such thing as evolution. He created this universe. It is impossible for the universe to have created itself. It is impossible because it would have had to have existed before it existed. Something had to put it into motion, and that is God. And God knew when he created that he was going to make a special place in the middle of all of that creation called the planet Earth. And he knew that he would put a being on that planet which bore his image, which reflected his glory. And he also knew that that being would turn away from him and would sin. And in that, everything else in creation fell. All of the dysfunction in this world, all of the hate, all of the bitterness came because of one man's act. But we could never under stand the grace and the mercy and the glory of God unless we first understood the bad that we had committed. And he knew that. And so he allowed this plan to come to its fruition in order to allow us to come back to him through the shed blood of his son. Everything that is recorded in scripture keeps telling us about Christ Jesus. Everything. 
It's because he wants us to understand how much he desperately loves us, that I am going to do something remarkable. I'm going to unite with the creation that I made, and I'm going to come in a human form to lead you back to me, if you are willing. And that's what's being pictured. The people that he came to rejected him, and that is more what's being pictured, right? They rejected him, and so God didn't just throw away his time there. Moses stayed with his Ethiopian bride. Well, Christ stayed with his bride. Well, Miriam, picturing Israel being punished, is outside, out in banishment, in corruption. Think of the Holocaust, if that doesn't picture corruption, right? But God has sovereignly kept his promise to them through the covenant, and he has brought them back to the land. Well, before that time comes to its fulfillment, he's going to do something else, which is beyond the imagination of anybody that has not heard it before. And they think, oh, that sounds stupid. It's called the rapture of the church. There is a day when he is going to come because his word says it's going to happen. He's going to take his believers out of here. And then this world is going to go into absolute chaos. Seven years of hell on earth because you want to do it your own way? Go ahead. You want to reject me? Go ahead. Just like he did with Adam. So that later those people that do survive could once again see the great grace and mercy of the Lord God. This is the reality of the Bible. And the Bible says that there is no other way to be reconciled to him except through the shed blood of Christ. If you have not come to God through Christ, he doesn't hear your prayers. He doesn't hear your pleas. He doesn't hear any of it because the Bible says your sins have separated you from your God so that he will not hear only Christ can remove the sins, and through Christ, he will hear all of your prayers. You said something when you opened us today about prayer today, Jim. You said, um, uh, when things are bad, and praying the second quote that you did, um, if you only pray when bad things happen, something, what was it? If you only pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Okay, well, that made me laugh because somebody yesterday emailed me about prayer. There was a disaster in this person's family, okay, and this individual said, I need prayer. And I told her almost exactly that. I said, you know, we pray to the Lord when things are going bad. But we don't think he's there when we're doing bad. When everything's good and we're out partying, he is there all the time. He is always there. If he can hear our prayers, which we all admit when things go bad, please pray to God for me. We're admitting that he can hear our prayers. Well, if he can hear our prayers, then he can see our bad. So if that what you that say that one more time. If you only pray when you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Very well said. Please don't let that attitude be yours. First call on Jesus Christ and then pray all the time. Paul says pray without ceasing. Just keep on praying. That doesn't mean get on your knees and close your eyes and start praying. It means when you're walking, talk to him. All prayer is is communication with your creator in a respectful manner. That's all it is. Talk to him. When you're driving, talk to him. Keep your eyes open. When you're, when you're you know, with friends, stop and thank the Lord for the meal and for the friendship. When your friend is in Israel suffering from the flu, pray for him. This is what we're asked to do. All right, but first get right with Jesus Christ. You must do that in order to have that relationship with him. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Micah 6. It's verse 4. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Next week is Numbers 13, verses 1 through 25. After this next sermon, we'll keep on going until the chapter is done. It's entitled, A Taste of the Land of Promise. Part 1. Thank you. Chase over there sleeping. That'll be our 23rd number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you.
It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I gave you every opportunity possible, Jay. Every opportunity. Thank you for bailing us out today, Jim. Be attentive next week. All right, I got a poem for you, and we'll be done. It's entitled, Unclean and Shut Out of the Camp. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman from the standard Hebrew woman his choice had varied. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. To his ears their words did go. Now the man Moses was very humble, not exalting his worth more than all the men who are on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. When the Lord spoke, there was no need for repeating. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of a cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward, probably scared sore. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream as I choose to do. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. He gets my top mark. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in sayings which are dark. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Why was your boasting not stayed? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. And he departed without further haw or hem. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as snow, so white. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was a leper, a terrible sight. So Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned by making such a fuss. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb and is ready even then to be entombed. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray to you my petition I am relaying. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received after the punishment for her errant ways. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till was brought in again Miriam. And afterward, the people moved from Hasarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the lessons we've learned today. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful story of redemption. And yes, punishment can be expected along the way when we disobey, but your covenant is one with Israel that will never be violated on your part. You will always be faithful to them, and you will always bring them back to yourself, just as your word says. You have not rejected your people, Israel. And in that, we can have the absolute confidence that in the greater and better new covenant, which is in Christ's blood, that you will never ever forsake us. We are saved. We are saved once and it is eternal. 
You have sealed sealed us who have believed with your Holy Spirit, and what a guarantee that is. We thank you for that assurance because each one of us trips and falls in our walk with you daily. But you, God, are filled, filled with grace and mercy, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the love you've poured out on us through the giving of your Son, and we thank you in his name. Amen.